The first words Gabriela Cordova, the founder of Sex Positive World, said to me, after the traditional, hello, nice to meet you, were... So I was in an orgy the other day, and I noticed that everybody spoke the same sex language, which was, oh, oh shit, oh shit, yes, oh fuck, fuck. And since basically yelling out expletives does get kind of repetitive and boring, and no one wants a boring orgy, Gabriella has come up with a playful fix to spice up how you climax. And that is incorporating animal names and sounds. Cow, 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 moo. Do it, do it. Give me some examples. Other. <laughs> what, what noise do you make for a hyena? <laughs> I don't know. No more shit. No more fuck. No more oh god. You know, let's do oh dolphin. <laughs> I can't do a dolphin sound. Can you do a dolphin sound? No, I can't. But someone who can, they need to make that part of their sexual repertoire. I think so, yes. <laughs> yes, I probably should have noticed we were already making hyena sounds just by laughing, essentially. But in my defense, listening to someone moo in ecstasy can make it difficult to concentrate on much else. Welcome to episode 14 of Sex with Strangers, Sex Positive Portland. This episode features much more from Gabriella and other major players in Portland's expansive sex-positive movement. We'll also hear from some sex workers, including a couple of dancers at the world's first vegan strip club, Casa Diablo. We'll even hear from some of our old Utah friends from last episode, because why the fuck not? So, it's going to be a good time. Please stick around. I think a good way to start this episode is with a working definition for sex positivity. So here's Gabriella once again. It's a both a way of living that recognizes that we are sexual beings having a human experience and and that we're on this very very broad spectrum in terms of our sexuality and it's about coming to peace with our sexuality and learning how to make it a, a really beautiful, enhancing part of our life rather than something that we're always fighting and, and in opposition to. Uh, but sex positive really is a movement, too. It's a philosophical idea and movement that says that all forms of consensual sexuality amongst peers should be not just accepted or tolerated, but understood and celebrated, because that way we can no longer use our sexuality as some way to, um, to, to keep people down or hurt, harm people or hurt people. It's been used, sex negativity has been such a tool for suppression and oppression, and especially women's sexuality. In many ways, the sex positive movement is a reaction to sex negativity. Here's Mary, another member of the Sex Positive World Portland leadership team, expressing what sex positivity is about to her. Embracing your sexuality without shame or guilt, realizing that sex is a good thing, that it's not, you know, dirty and should be hidden and, and shamed. 
And of course, sex negativity and shame go hand in hand, as last episode demonstrated. Gabriella has a unique backstory that definitely feeds into her current work. And I had been shamed a lot because I grew up in a polyamorous family and believing that sharing was 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 the right thing. So wow, so so your parents were polyamorous. Yeah, they didn't there wasn't a word for that at the time, but they my mom, my mom and stepdad when they married, they uh they had they brought their maid of honor to bed with them, and in my lifetime, I I watched them have multi, you know other partners that moved in with us for various lengths of time. My mother also was um, was a sex worker for various times in my life, and she was also she retired from doing sensual massage at seventy. So I always was around that, and I also dabbled myself in sex work, and it's kind of a family tradition. And um, I felt like it was very important work I was doing and that I knew my mother felt that way, that she was touching people, making a difference, saving marriages. This idea of the sex worker as someone who provides a meaningful service that is more than physical, but emotional and psychological even, has come up in a number of episodes. When I was back in Utah... Ramona put it in probably the most succinct way I've heard, which is she referred to her escort work as naked therapy. And she finds that aspect of the job particularly rewarding. Gabriella founded Sex Positive World back in 2009. And this organization, which is described on its website as a nonprofit dedicated to making the world a sexier, more touch-positive, heart-centered, and connected place, now has six chapters around the world. The largest chapter, not surprisingly, is the original one, Sex Positive World Portland. The two largest groups, Portland and Los Angeles, have a combined membership of more than 2,000 people. There are also chapters in Chicago, London, Reno, and Ventura slash Santa Barbara. And that seems like just the beginning. The goal is to have chapters in every major U.S. city, and Gabriella is traveling to Europe this month to help launch chapters in Amsterdam and Brussels. They are also in the early planning stages on bringing Sex Positive World to Austria. I got to meet and socialize with some of the core members of the Portland group, and one incredibly important member who really stood out was Mary Gravening, who we heard from a little bit earlier. Her initial involvement in the group happened somewhat randomly at the age of 53. A friend of mine uh, happened to be in a salsa dance class with the founder, and she mentioned to him about this group, and he knew me how... Well, I was his cougar, you know, 25 <laughs> years ago before there ever was such a word. And What, uh, what was the age difference? Uh, 10 years. Okay. I, I was, he was 22, I was 32. Okay. And um, so he, you know, knew that I was very sexual and, you know, who who else but to ask to, you know, go with him to check this out. And we were really nervous, really, really nervous because I'm thinking, oh, you know, it's going to be a bunch of hard bodies and models and, you know, all this stuff. And we went there and it's like, wow, this is just really regular people. And so open and honest, we did this naughty scavenger hunt where we were walking up to, to 
you know, mingling in the room and asking people these really intimate questions. And I freaking loved it. It was so awesome. And then I look over and here's this guy giving this girl a spanking. And I run over there. I'm like, do I get a turn? You know, and it's like just totally just changed my life and opened my world. And um, I started just going to events, going to events. And the founder saw my enthusiasm and, um, you know, my commitment and that I was showing up. And so, um, she just got me more and more involved and here I am a hun almost 130 events and I'm co-organizer, volunteer coordinator, event host, and SPP head cheerleader. Emphasis on the cheerleader. The head is negotiable. <laughs> This group hasn't changed who Mary is, but it has helped her accept herself. I always felt like I had this dirty little secret, you know, because I was always so hypersexual in my mind and everything, but I always kept it pretty much in check. And then when I met, you know, got into the group, wow, you know, it just changed my life. It's been, um, well, it was August of 2012, and... Um, once I got into the group, I never went back. This has been it. You know, my my regular friends don't hardly see me anymore. I my life has just changed. I just have more fun with with this new community and these people because there's just this extra added element of just such openness and honesty and the real cornerstone of our group is the 3 Cs: care, confidentiality and consent. It's also given her a different perspective on aging. And I think her big personality, along with her adventurous and boisterous nature, has probably changed the way other people in her orbit think about women's sexuality after 50. Growing up, being told, you know, you're going to get old, you're going to dry up, you're not going to want to have sex, no one's going to want to have sex with you, you're going to just be old and boring and whatever. And, you know, I'm here to dispel that. And I think I do a pretty good job of it. I do too. And Mary really is having the time of her life. There's a lot of times I mostly would notice it when I'm driving. I think, oh my God, why does my face hurt? Oh, it's from smiling so much. Because <laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> talk talk about a great problem to have. Exactly. This I is have true. literal smile pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was funny. We were at a um, uh, just a, a poly discussion group and there was uh, a girl that was brand new to the group and she had said, God, my face kind of hurts. And she and we sat there watching her come to this realization that, oh, God, it's from smiling. And we just like, yay. <laughs> It was nice. In the hierarchy of pain, smile pain has to be the best, right? I hope all of you get the opportunity to experience smile pain sometime soon. And this transformation Mary has gone through is actually very common. Mary mentioned attending close to 130 of these life-changing, smile-inducing events. And one that she seemed to have a particularly fond memory of was called Luscious Ladies. What happens with Luscious Ladies? <laughs> oh, 
by the <laughs> 18 women by the end of the night the scent of pussy in that room was intoxicating <laughs> you may be thinking to yourself i'd really like to be intoxicated by the scent of pussy where do i sign up well that's where things get a little complicated group events are private and tiered there are four different levels of events and each level gets more intense. And sometimes, four isn't quite enough to describe the full scope of certain events. My birthday party was a level five, I would say, but those are not posted events. So is level five like an orgy? Oh, well, level four can be an orgy, but... <laughs> so what is a level five? If level, level four is orgy, uh, what, what level is beyond orgy? Oh, man. A uh, whole night of lap dances, orgies, gangbangs, you know. But, oh, but, oh, yeah, a lot of sex, a lot of sex. Okay, I admit it, I admit it. Yeah, we get, we get down and dirty. But, you know, as any really hardcore involved member would tell you, that's great, but it's really about our community of friends. You know, we're all really super hypersexual people. So what do you do? How do you, how do you take care of that? Well, there's Craigslist. There's dating sites. There's the adult clubs. There's going to bars and picking up strangers. Or you have this community of friends that you know that you trust, that you get together and have fun with. And that's what I choose to do. Here's Mary explaining the four different levels. They're educational, social, sensual, and sexual. And educational is, you know, workshops, listening to speakers, that kind of thing. Social is, you know, barbecues. Uh, we're going to hump next weekend, different things like that. And then we have sensual stuff, um... Like, you know, the sensation play party, which we're doing tomorrow. And then there is the full on, you know, sexual parties. There's a couple adult clubs in town. We have gatherings. We go monthly gatherings. We go to those. And we're the life of the party. We are the life of the party. People just like, who are, who is this group? And if you want to attend one of these events, you're going to have to start at level one. You can gradually work your way up from there. But before attending, even that level one event, you need to fill out a detailed application. And submitting an application does not guarantee admission into the group. We approve about a third to a half of the people who apply. Really? Depends on what city, yeah. Wow. Mary got a little bit more into the application process and really broke down why that acceptance rate is as low as it is. Right now, we are just booming and growing. We're getting mm, five to 10 a day which is a lot. Yeah. Um, that adds up quickly. Yes, it does add up quickly. Pretty much women you're in, you know, lesbians, gays, um, you know, uh, gender fluid. You're pretty much in because we want to keep it real diverse. It's the hetero, middle-aged hetero males. And uh, if they have a really great background, you know, we ask specific questions, you know, what's your background in this type of community? If they say none, then, <laughs> you know, you can kind of tell, you know, because we're not a dating site. We're not a hookup site. 
And you can tell sometimes by their answers what they're expecting. And it's not just about expectations. Any organizer of a play party or other sexual event where men and women interact has to think about the gender ratio. Because if there's no screening process, there's a very good chance men, particularly straight middle-aged men, will outnumber women by a margin that could actually ruin the event. So a lot of these types of events welcome unaccompanied women, but do not admit unaccompanied men. The Orgy Dome at Burning Man, for instance, is only open to couples or moresomes, as they put it. Kinky Salon, another organization that throws play parties, bills their events as being for couples and chaperoned singles only. No one can come to their events alone. There is one kind of event, though, that Mary's a big fan of. She's hosted six of them. Where having a few extra men around isn't necessarily a bad thing. And those are CFNMs. Uh, that's clothed female, naked male. Um, it's nice to have a few extra men because, you know, right, I want right. one rubbing my feet and I want a man rubbing my shoulders. And you, sir, will you please fill my wine? So that is, it's nice to have a few extra men, but I'll keep track of who's signing up. And then I might say, you know, okay, guys, no more men can sign up till we get more women or you have to sign up with a woman. Even at an event organized around male nudity, you can easily end up with too many penises. And something tells me the resulting scent is a little less intoxicating. But I could be wrong. And this concept of having one person or group of people nude and another fully dressed exists in every possible gender combination, including clothed female, nude female. And it's a pretty popular genre of porn. There are tumblers and fetish sites dedicated to its various incarnations, and if it interests you, believe me, the internet is your friend. I consider it a very light form of BDSM since it's about power exchange. And sometimes it's the naked person or people who possess the power in body worship scenarios, for instance. And other times, the opposite is true. We're turning the tables on societal roles. And the big, you know, that I drill into people is the women are proactive and the men are reactive. So the men, if they're not, in, you know, engaged with a woman, they are to sit and wait till they're called over. You know, they are not to be the aggressor at all. And um, so, of course, the women have to be comfortable with being in a room full of naked men and the men have to be comfortable being around a bunch of other naked men. But the funny thing is, is after about 45 minutes or so, it's not that big of a deal, except that you see, you know, the, <laughs> the appendages rising and falling periodically. And I have a strip song that I use every single time. And so I always joke, oh, anytime my boy, my CFNM boys hear that song, they're going to be, you know, going for their belt to take their pants off. It's Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. <laughs> so if you make it past the application process, you are welcome at level one events which are educational in nature. And within a month of joining, you're expected to attend an orientation. What sort of 
things do people learn at orientation? Well, they learn all about uh, how our group works. We talk more about what is sex positive and um, how to be involved. But so the first part is just we're telling them how it all works and how the level system and boundaries and consent and care and confidentiality and all those things. And then the second part, we actually lead people through some level two exercises where they're actually doing boundary exercises and and end up maybe giving a shoulder massage or, you know, hair touching or something at a level two. And is it almost like a test to, to make sure they can handle that? Yeah, we actually, <laughs> after a number, after orientations, we um, will usually have about maybe 30 or 40 newcomers and maybe 15 or 20 people that have come many times and we'll kind of talk about, you know, what do you think about so-and-so and so-and-so? And, you know, there's people that will say like, oh my God, we want to nab them for leadership or, you know, for like really getting them involved for, for um, hosting events and that kind of thing. Or we'll say, let's keep our eye on that person. And a few times we've actually just, you know, said, sorry, you're not a fit. And that's and- really, really hard to do. We'd love to be able to help everyone and be a home for everyone but we know that that it's really important that that the but the experience people have when they come is so dependent on the members and what they bring a couple of creeps can ruin what would otherwise be an amazing event and this is something all kink communities and organizers of sexual events have to be vigilant about any well-run play party or orgy or whatever is a truly safe space where people who don't respect boundaries or understand consent are not welcome. We talked a bit last episode about how the Salt Lake City BDSM scene has a sponsorship system that requires every new person to be vouched for by a trusted member of the community. And part of that is, of course, because the events are underground and legally questionable and they're could be consequences if an attendee doesn't exercise an adequate degree of discretion. But it's also about filtering out creeps. And this is part of why kink communities around the world host munches, which are casual social gatherings usually held in restaurants or bars. And generally, anyone interested in a given scene is welcome to drop by that community's munch, which often serves partly as a vetting system. Finch, who we heard from last episode, is a very active player in the Salt Lake scene and runs and attends local munches, in part to meet new people who he believes might be worthy of sponsorship. But not everyone makes that cut. One guy one time I was at a munch talking with him and he kept talking about how how much touch is appropriate. to touch somebody you don't know. And I just told him, ask them. Yeah. And he yeah. couldn't get that concept. He was like, well, but if I want to touch their hair, like, okay, <laughs> is their hair part of them? Then don't touch it if they don't want, or, or ask, or hey, can I touch your hair? And, well, and then he's like, well, that sounds kind of creepy to ask. I was like, exactly. <laughs> it is creepy to ask and to want to do that. I'm just imagining like, I don't know. Some woman flogging a man while there's like another man just standing next to her, just like stroking her hair like she's a cat or something. We one time we had a guy come through. We actually had to blacklist him. We he came. It it was it was actually this time last year. Um, 
he came through, he went, there were two parties in a row. He went to the first party and he didn't respect a lot of stuff. And they sat him down and they said, here's what you're doing wrong. You're making people uncomfortable. Stop it. And that we didn't kick, no, he wasn't kicked out then. It was just, look, what you're, you're new. What, what kind of things was he doing? Uh, the experience I had with him was I played with somebody and then I was in aftercare afterwards and he like tapped me on the shoulder and he wanted to get in on the aftercare. I was like, no, <laughs> no, this is no. This is not a scene. Yeah. It's like, no, I've just, no. Well, it's not even, I don't know. I, this was the first time I ever met this guy. Like I had played with this person. It was a hot, fun scene. We had a lot of fun and a bit of a crowd gathered and we're done with this scene. We're doing the cuddly, you know, aftercare stuff. And it's, I don't remember the exact wording, but, but the memory I have is like him tapping me on the shoulder and be like, Hey, can I get in on that dog? You know, can I get some of that? <laughs> Anyone who calls you dog, too. I don't. It wasn't the exact word. That's, that's what's left in my brain. It's just like this dude, like, hey, can I have a hit of that? You know. <laughs> Another thing these communities often need to cover with new members is how to negotiate. People need to know how to voice their intentions, limits, desires, and so on. Which is why it's so great that. Negotiating exercises are part of the sex positive world orientation process. We teach that that, you know, obviously a no is a no, a maybe is a no, and a yes is a hell yes. And we would rather have people go home afterwards saying, I wish I had done that than I wish I hadn't done that. Right. Because there's always, you know, more opportunities and more chances. And then of course there's technique and safety. Certain play activities, BDSM in particular, can be dangerous if not done properly. And even if poorly executed scenes aren't dangerous, they are often unsatisfying. So there are plenty of reasons to learn what you're doing. Safety came up often in my conversations in Salt Lake, and I was pleased to see it referenced just as much in Portland. Sex Positive World doesn't seem to focus a ton on BDSM. They sponsor more cuddle parties than floggings, but some of their events do involve impact play. So they do sponsor educational events that delve into this arena as well. We started in our kink education series, we had a spanking workshop. Um, because that can be dangerous too. Yeah. Oh, and, and oh, the BDSMers, you know, they're very about semantics. Spanking is with your head. So it's impact. It should be impact workshop. But um, yeah, that was a lot. Oh, because of you fun. also did flogging and paddling. Yes. Yeah. And, and we had um, someone who's very known in, in several of the communities was the teacher. And he brought all of his stuff and, you know, explained to us what the different tools were and uh you know, what kind of sensations they gave. And, and then everybody got to play and practice on each other because there's nothing worse than getting a bad spanking or bad impact. And, you know, how do you perfect your technique other than to just do it? And I was a willing recipient and giving people instant feedback and, and learn, oh, that was good. Okay, remember what, yeah, that was good. Do that, you know. Portland also places a real focus on rope safety, mostly because they have a very active rope community. The importance of safety protocols when tying people up had been on my mind for a little bit at that point because of a cautionary tale Ramona told me back in Utah. It's a story I think anyone who is considering being tied up or tying someone up needs to hear. 
Ramona's initial exposure to BDSM play was with a guy who really didn't know what he was doing. He avoided safe words, hard limits, aftercare, and so on. So it's not at all surprising that he didn't put much thought into how he tied her up. So I was tied to his queen bed's bedpost with belts. Okay. So that's one thing where if you're doing something with that hard or not malleable fabric per se, then you want to make sure there's still plenty of room to kind of jiggle a little bit. You want your bottom to have some breathing room and you don't want to do it around the joints because it can cause nerve damage as well as joint and bone damage. So what he should have done is use nylons or a scarf or something like that, or even a rope where I would have at least a couple inches of wiggle room. But you had none. I have no wiggle room. So I'm just completely staunch against the bedpost. And then as he's fucking me and beating on me while I'm trying to move, I ended up resisting so hard that I broke my own wrist against the belt. That's kind of an extreme example. But novices playing with rope do hurt each other as well, sometimes seriously. So if you are interested in rope bondage and live in a major city... There's a decent chance you can find a local class or workshop on rope safety. And at the very least, read about safe techniques or watch some YouTube videos. There are plenty of them. The same goes for anyone considering trying out impact play. Learn about safe impact areas and unsafe impact areas. The human body can be surprisingly fragile. And information about safe techniques is too abundant and easily obtainable for anyone to have any excuse for embarking into potentially dangerous activities without doing some basic research. But I'm going to get out of public service announcement mode for a second. Actually, no, there's one more super important public service announcement that Mary would like to share with you. Don't suck cock on a full stomach. (laughs) And you can quote me on that. Words to live by. One other thing that I know Mary wanted to emphasize is that there are plenty of group events that are nothing like sex parties. There are clothing exchanges and writing groups and sex-positive theater, which they brought to Portland and will bring to London in December. So there's a lot going on. I had the privilege of attending a Level 1 Sensation Play workshop that Gabriella hosted. And even though it was educational in nature, it still felt very sensual to me. It really did feel just like one of the educational workshops that were featured in HBO's Real Sex in the 90s. And that's not to say it felt retro or dated in any way, because I think the spirit and energy of those events is timeless. It was really cool, informative, and engaging. So all I can say is that if you live in an area with a sex-positive world chapter and the group's sensibilities mesh with yours, I'd consider applying. And I want to stress that if you do apply and are rejected, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a creep. Though, that may play a factor. What's great about Portland, if you're a sex-positive, outgoing person interested in attending workshops and play parties, is that there are more kinky public events to choose from than you could possibly ever attend. A number of cities have online calendars listing various local kink events, but I think Portland's kink calendar might be the best. 
And it's largely because the woman at the helm of it, Anna Marie, doesn't simply focus on activities that appeal to her personally, but tries to incorporate as diverse a group of events as possible. And the different kinky subcultures appearing on this calendar are spectacularly varied. It's what Portland is really good at. If you look at like the restaurant scene here, we have niche restaurants for for vegan, for gluten-free, for carnivores, for paleo. And the kink community has kind of done the same thing. You can find your little, like the core community that fits you quite well. And here are some of the core communities that happen to pop into Anne Marie's head during our conversation. So we have some adult babies, um, but usually the littles differentiate themselves from the adult babies. Littles are toddlers through teenager, usually. Okay. Some sort of age regression, but not so much about the adult babies who are focusing more on diapers and feeding and that sort of care. They don't, like if you picture like usually toddlers don't so much want to play with their baby siblings. It's the same with the communities. Uh, I think we have a local puppy contest that happens now. So we're actually our puppy community is growing. We have a small but growing pony community. We have the swing community. We have, then you can divide out by like the rope community is very well developed. We have tons of rope specific events here. Events that are specifically for dominant women and submissive men. We have events that are specifically for queer women. I just discovered our furry community, which I'm excited about. I've been trying to get in touch with them to make sure I get their events listed properly. So I just love that I can do this for two years and like spend a a fair amount of time tracking down all of our local events and still find new stuff. And it's not that the furry community is brand new. It's just that this is the first time I've come across them. So it's exciting. As to why it took her two years to find the furries, Anna Marie has her theories. I think they're just separate from the kink community more. Puppies are very different from furries. So puppies, there's more overlap with uh, the kink community and the bootblock community. Furries at least here, seem to have more of their own community. The furries tend to, from my understanding, do more uh, costuming and have more of a like a, a persona identity. Where I see in the kink community, people doing pet play where they take on like the role of a puppy or the role of a kitty or a pony. But it's less about having the whole outfit. Ponies can do a little bit of the outfits. I just don't know how to differentiate because it's a very Cause, yeah, different Yeah, because when I think feeling. of pony play, I think of just like that tail butt plug and maybe some sort of like headgear. And I think of no other clothes. I've <laughs> seen beautiful pony outfits of like a, like a full like her bodysuit with the Appaloosa print on it and just amazing things. Where have you come across that here in Portland? Uh, uh, Kingfest usually has a handful of ponies. There isn't a whole lot of super active Portland uh, pony community here. When you head up more towards Seattle, there are more ponies that way. <laughs> That's just such a great sentence. <laughs> Why do you think there are more ponies in Seattle? I have no idea. It, a lot of it comes down to just who who does the organizing. If somebody has the time and the energy, if they have space to do it, and we haven't really had that here. We did have somebody who was organizing a Sunday uh, pony outing at one of our local parks. But I think that was mostly for summer because it's hard to go and be a pony when it's 
Portland pissing down. But yeah, I think there's just there's just enough folks up in Seattle who have the resources to pull together a community. Like they get to do more of it there. The pony leader is <laughs> is in Seattle, so that's where yeah. all the ponies <laughs> gallop to. You see that pretty much everywhere. Just having a handful of folks who are interested in something doesn't necessarily give you a vibrant community. You usually need somebody who takes the time and the energy to organize an event. And when you have a handful of people who will do that, you can build a really, really vibrant community. I think she's right in saying that furries, for the most part, unlike the puppies and ponies, occupy a world that's very much removed from the kink community. And the reason I have an opinion on this is insanely random. Less than an hour after leaving Anna Marie's house, I found myself sitting directly across a table from Stephen Couchman, who just happened to be the driving force behind Portland's very first furry convention, Furlandia, in 2013. The only catch is that he himself is not a furry. He's a werewolf enthusiast. People that suddenly turn fuzzy and rip your face off tickle my funny place, but not in a sexual way. Back in 2012, he produced a werewolf convention and, well, some furries showed up. So they're running around and dancing and people are interacting with them. They're having a great time. And then afterward, after they've got their heads off and they're desperately trying to rehydrate, one of them says to me, yeah, we're having fun. This is the closest thing Portland's had to a furry convention, which anybody who knows me knows is a dangerous thing to say to me because I'm addicted to starting conventions now. And the rest is history. My conversation with Stephen eventually took a turn that kind of surprised me, though in retrospect, Maybe it shouldn't have. You didn't feel like it was a fetish event, is what you were saying before. No, um, it was a fan convention, uh, like any other fan convention I've run or been to. So, now, I'm curious, fan of what exactly? The, the long-winded description is anthropomorphic animal art. Okay. The shorthand is funny animals. Anything we've got animals walking around like people goes back as far as, you know, the Egyptian gods or Aesop's fables, if you want to take it that far. But, you know, sort of celebrating the ability to caricature human characteristics and personalities by casting them as critters and then playing with the animality of it. A lot of people seem to view furries as these sex-crazed, zoophilic, stuffed animal fucking maniacs. But... The question is, is there any evidence for this? The November 2014 issue of the Archives of Sexual Behavior, coincidentally, features an article by Canadian sex researchers entitled, A Peek Inside a Furry Convention. The article's primary author, Deborah W. So, I hope I'm saying her name correctly, visited the world's largest furry convention, expecting an orgy but found a rather tame fan convention instead. The most scandalous thing she saw was some erotic art featuring anthropomorphic creatures with human genitalia engaging in typical sex acts. That's a direct quote, by the way. But 
Here's probably the most important quote in the article. The one message that was consistent across my conversations was that each member of the community felt they had something that made them different and ill-fitting in mainstream society, such as Asperger's syndrome or a facial tick. They found some aspect of childhood, such as a cartoon character or stuffed animal, to be comforting. And this appreciation continued on into their adult lives. The fandom gave them a safe venue in which to express themselves and to feel accepted by others who feel similarly. End quote. So her research seems to indicate that furries are often socially disenfranchised people who have gravitated to a very accepting social group where they can play characters that they have created for themselves. And it's easy to see how someone having this cartoon alter ego could impact their sex life, but it doesn't necessarily have to. At its core, furry fandom does not appear to be about sex. Here's how Miss So starts the final paragraph of her paper. Furries are well aware that the public perceives their community and lifestyle as being primarily motivated by sex. I would expect that engaging in a conversation with an outsider such as myself would lead them to want to promote a cleaner image of the fandom. However, based on my conversations with furries, artists, and vendors that day, I got the sense that there are additional layers of depth behind the decision to become a furry and that sex and furry pornography are only one aspect of their lifestyle, end quote. I'm sure there's quite a bit of variation in how much of his or her sexuality individual furries inject into their fursonas. I'm sure some of them like to fuck as cartoon wolves or whatever their given identity is, and others keep their sex lives separate. If you look at the furry fandom Wikipedia page, you'll see some statistics from a couple of surveys, both claiming that about a third of furries have a, quote, significant sexual interest in furry. But we don't really have a clear idea of what that means or how that gets expressed. But assuming that statistic is correct, which I'm honestly hesitant to do, up to a third of furry sex might sound a little like this. Cow, 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 moo. With the remaining two thirds probably sounding more like this. Oh, oh shit, oh shit, yes, oh fuck, fuck. But that's misleading too, because I think the most noteworthy statistic about furries is that a lot of their sex probably doesn't involve women at all. A 2008 study, again by Canadians, I'm not sure why the Canadians are obsessed with furries, but more power to them, found that 86% of furries were male, and of that male population, 31.5% of them identified as gay, 
and an additional 40.5% of those men identified as bisexual, with only 28% of them being straight. And among the 14% of furries identified as female, 58.3 of them were straight and 41.7% were bisexual. They found zero lesbian furries. These figures, particularly among the men, are way different than what's seen in the general public. And if we really want to understand the sexual milieu of furries, those statistics are an incredibly important piece of the puzzle. We've included a link to a post from Psychology Today that delves deeper into all of these studies at sexwithstrangershow.com. Even if we accept that furry fandom has a sexual element, I think it's difficult to associate it with the flamboyant, kinky role-playing of ponies and puppies. At least in most cases. But if we go deep into the Sex with Strangers audio archives, there is a clip relating to puppy play that demonstrates how this form of role-playing can sometimes feel both sexual and not particularly sexual at the same time. If you've listened to episode 6, Sex in Boomtown USA, I'm sure you remember Mariah. I don't give a fuck about you or your pimp. She really doesn't. Mariah is an escort, or at least she was back in May when I spoke with her. Here she is reminiscing about a memorable fetish client who seems to be engaging in something at least close to puppy play. Back home, I had one that would bring a dog kennel, and he would go in the dog kennel, and I'd put a blanket over him. He would stay the night. Like, I'd have other dates that would come in, and he would, like, whimper, and he sounded like whine, like a dog, and they thought I had a dog in the room. And they're like, oh, you have a puppy? And I'm like, yeah, shut up, bitch, go to sleep, type stuff, you know, like... No one tried to look at the no. puppy, because that would... They run screaming out of the room, I assume. Probably, yeah. He was a a professor at a college. (laughs) Of course he was. A Barry professor that taught political science. And did you ever touch him, or he just did the dog? Like he wanted, like he would do worship, like uh, kiss my feet, uh, ass worshiping. I got a lot that that that's a big thing, a big fetish thing, ass worshiping. Text and call all the time. Can I worship your ass? So worship you just want to like kiss and rub it? Kiss your a... ass, lick your ass, all that shit. But see, I'm not okay with you licking my ass. Like, So the worshiping is overtly sexual. But staying in a cage and howling through the night doesn't feel particularly sexual to me. Though the fact that he hired Mariah to aid in this process does suggest that to the professor, this form of role-playing is sexual, which proves that what is or is not sexual is incredibly subjective. Misha is an escort I spoke with in Portland. She had only been there for about six months at the time of our interview and was Pretty surprised by how much more common bareback requests were in Portland than they were back home. I don't really advertise very much, but when I was advertising a lot, it was like once a week. 
Okay. I have this one guy who would, uh, he would write me maybe once a month saying, uh, bareback full service, $300. And I'm like, that's like $20 more than my rate. Like, yeah, I'm really going to risk AIDS or pregnancy for, uh, 20 bucks. for an extra 20 bucks. And I'd, I'd write him that and be like, that's, that's a little insulting, don't you think? I'm not going to do it, but you're not even like sweetening the pot. Right, right. And he's like, okay, okay, fine. 800 I'm like, I'm, st- I'm still not doing it. And he's like, why? It would feel better. I said, because I don't know what diseases you may have, and I don't want to get pregnant. He's like, oh, I'm clean, but I'm very fertile. I might get you pregnant. <laughs> Way to sell me on this. I'm so down now, yeah. You sound well, clean. I mean, don't you want to have a fer- fertile man's child? <laughs> oh, you're I so virile. Mean... Come to my house. Think about how fertile your offspring will be. <laughs> Repopulate the earth. The, the, Mommy, that's... how did you meet Daddy? <laughs> he responded to my ad on TNA. What an amazing gentleman. Misha started doing this work in Salt Lake City and was Ramona's sex work mentor. In fact, Ramona affectionately refers to Misha as her whore mother. Are you glad you made the, the move here from Salt Lake? Definitely. It's so much safer. Like, I'm just so much more comfortable working here and being here. Just because of law enforcement issues. Yeah. Yeah. Law enforcement is so much less overzealous. That's good. Like, it That's doesn't good. feel like constantly breath down the back of my neck. Like, oh, they're coming for you. In Salt Lake, it's just a barrage. It's constant. It's not like it is here where it's very organized, regimented stings. You know, okay, you know, once every three months or election season, they're going to run a sting. But the added sense of safety has, at least in Misha's experience, resulted in a sex work culture that's more fragmented. Whereas in Salt Lake, the sense of danger united everyone in the field. In Portland, no one even seems to use the reference system, which is how sex workers throughout the U.S. and around the world often screen potential clients. Misha has long given up on sending reference requests to her Portland colleagues. There's never going to be any uh, tit for tat. They're not going to write you for a reference. So there's no real incentive for them to respond to it. Which I think is a pity because using the reference system really brings escorts together. It means we're talking to each other. Right, right. So I go, hey, so-and-so, have you seen this guy? And she goes, oh, yeah, he was great. He was my, my regular for a few months. It was nice. Um, how have you been? I saw that thing you were posting. So it, it breeds more community. And are the references mostly just to make sure the person's not a cop? Or is it more about safety? Or is it both, I it's guess? It's both. Um, it's both. And it's good to have uh, some insight into that guy. So the, the lady might say... Oh, he was really nice, but he's kind of a boundary pusher. You have to keep an eye on him. He will, you know, try to stick fingers in your butt or, you know, he'll try to, you know, come in your mouth, whatever you don't allow. Um, Especially guys that try to take off the condom and go bareback. These guys, they'll try anything. So you have to watch them like a hawk. They'll uh, try to turn you doggy style and then remove the condom while you're facing away from them. Wow. That last thing in particular is something... I would want to be warned about if I were in Misha's shoes. Misha now conducts her own background checks over the internet using 
sex work forums, and other sites like... Verify Him, Spokio, uh, LinkedIn is really good for this, and you enter in people's information and see what comes up. I'm glad to see someone has finally found a useful purpose for LinkedIn. Sadly, LinkedIn lacks a section that will warn you if a given person is going to try to stick their fingers in your butt. Or secretly remove the condom. Like any other job, sex work comes with various surprises. Which is why, in a lot of places, experienced professionals mentor newcomers. Back in Salt Lake, Misha helped Ramona acclimate to sex work. And according to Misha, the most important part of being a sex work mentor is just being available to answer various questions as they arise. There's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes where you're texting constantly. Um, If you have somebody who already knows what they're doing, you have to ask them a lot of questions. You have to say, is this guy safe? Have you seen this guy? What do I do when he says this? Is that sketchy? Uh, a lot of, uh, is this a red flag? Because so much of this comes from experience. There's no real guidebooks. I mean, there's books on like Amazon and everything, but they're so, everything is so relative. Right. Your experience is not the same as everybody else's. And that's why it's important for sex workers to communicate with each other. Misha hasn't given up on fostering community in her new home. So she's gotten involved with Swap Portland. Swap is the sex worker outreach project, and there are chapters of it around the world. But I was really surprised to hear how small the group is in Portland. It's growing. We went from like three people to now like 12 people. And I think that's going to really help create community in the escorting community in Portland. It's also strippers, Dominic Pussies. Anyone who's a sex worker. Yeah, because, I mean, it's needed. And it's not like Salt Lake where everybody's talking because they have to. Now people are talking because they want to enact change. And there are a lot of people to include in that conversation. One fact a number of folks were eager to share with me is that Portland has more strip clubs per capita than any other U.S. city. And that seems to be true, though one caveat is that this applies to the 50 largest cities in the U.S. because I'm sure there's a town somewhere which, you know, technically has only like seven residents, but has three strip clubs anyway. A local publication, Willamette Weekly, looked into this and found one strip club for every 9,578 residents, beating Tampa which has one strip club for every 10,813 residents. Las Vegas wasn't even close, with a strip club to resident ratio of 1 to 33,002. One explanation is the general sex positivity of Portland. But more importantly, with that sex positivity comes very loose zoning regulations of strip clubs. Any commercial space can be used as a strip club, which is what happened with Casa Diablo. The space was a pirate-themed vegan restaurant that wasn't doing particularly well, so owner Johnny Diablo had a stage built, brought in some dancers, 
and has had an incredibly successful fully nude vegan strip club ever since. If you listen to episode 10 of this show, Sex with Strippers, you may recall that the two women we heard from in that episode, who both dance in Chicago, felt judged by the outside world and were hesitant to talk about their jobs with a lot of people, family in particular. Well, Portland has a more laid-back, less judgmental approach to this industry. And I think this story from Nikki demonstrates that point quite well. Actually, on Halloween, I worked at the sister club to this place, the Black Cauldron, and I had some family come in because they were out and about and like, will it be weird if we come see you? I was like, a little bit. Just don't sit at my stage, please. And um, my mom was like, my cousin was the DD for everyone. And I was like, mom, you need to get him a lap dance. And she's like, well, then point me to the right person. I was like, I'm not, no. I'm going to ask him who he likes because he's the one getting the dance. And I asked him and he's like, I like that girl. And it's like, okay. And hey, can you take care of him, please? And she's like, why? Do you know him? I was like, it's my cousin, actually. <laughs> but they were very respectful about it, and they were impressed, like, the fact that I can do pole tricks and actually dance. And I was like, yeah, Mom, I told you to get me to dance. Like, I, I'm a dancer. Like, that's what my so, passion So is. it was your mom, your cousin, who else? My aunt. Well, she's not my aunt biologically, just by marriage. She was my cousin's best friend in high school, so I've known her since I was, like, really little. And so it seems like it wasn't as awkward as you thought it would be. I didn't think it would be, no. Oh, you didn't think it would be awkward stripping for your mom? I was like, oh, my God, my mom's going to be here. Oh, my God. But they were really good about it. They sat towards the back, and um, there was a couple times where I was like, give that girl money. (laughs) Thanks. It was okay. They were just like, I'm really impressed. Like, and that was a really good compliment for me because I didn't think I was doing really well in pool stuff. Who said a strip club can't be a family-friendly place? She mentioned a sister club, Black Cauldron. So yes, Portland currently has two vegan strip clubs, and there are actually two more in the works. So in the near future, Portland should have four vegan strip clubs. Do people come here just for dinner sometimes? Yes. Is that a, is we that have a, a lot of uh, customers that come in that are vegan, and they'll come in for lunch or dinner. And one of the main reasons that they're coming in, they might bring, you know, a little bit of money to tip on stage. Um, so they're probably not coming in on the weekends when there's a cover. But, yeah, they, they came here for the food. Because it is that good. It's like going to a restaurant. I don't think any other strip club can make that claim. It, well. That people go for the food? I don't know. Ra- Rachel's in Florida. Okay. Rachel's in Florida. Um, they have a few of them, and the, it's five-star dining there. They, they have fabulous food there. I, I worked there for quite, quite a little while. I stand corrected. That's Faye. She's the manager of Casa Diablo. She started out there as a dancer and worked her way up to manager, which isn't all that surprising considering the club's hiring practices. Everybody's given an opportunity to do other kinds of things. If you dance here, then you're automatically have an in. So we only hire bartenders and waitresses from the dancer pool in order to give them another skill and we'll train completely. Um, the owner is very big on making sure that everybody feels supported. So if we have a girl that gets pregnant, she still has a job because what we do is we have a hostess spot on the weekends. And so she can work the door for the time that she's pregnant. And we, for the entire time we've had that hostess spot for the, because we only have a door entry fee on the weekend nights. Uh, 
they work the door and they can still make money to support their pregnancy and stuff. That's fantastic. It, it really is. They, they are very, very wonderful people and they treat their girls. I have danced for 15 years and I've danced around this country and back again and I used to headline around the country. I've never met people that have treated girls, the girls that are dancers so respectfully and so well. Part of managing a business is taking pride in it and talking up that business to others. But I could tell Faye really believed what she was saying. And she wasn't alone. A dancer who happened to overhear our conversation felt compelled to jump in. It's fucking true. This is the best place, best company to work for in the industry. I've only been in the industry for two months, and I, I learned that really fast. Like, Have you been dancing at other clubs, too? Or? No, I, I danced at one other club, and I experienced a very negative um, experience. What was your negative experience? Um, the lack of security, the lack of safety for the girls. Mm. Basically, at the, like the room where you do lap dances in, it was one big room, and you just bend for yourself. There was no bouncer back there. There were no cameras. That's a little scary. It was scary. It was. Yeah. And guys think they can get away with things that they really can't. And if we let them get away with things or if something happens when you, and you're not even allowed to or in the position where you can defend yourself, you get in trouble as a dancer at that club. And it's like we don't even have like the appropriate safety protocols, like yeah. cameras and people back there fucking watching you or like helping you, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And here That's you feel perfectly safe. There's a camera on every booth here. Yeah. And it's not just to protect the girls, it's to protect the customers too. That was Gia. Not to be mistaken with the other Gia, who dances in Chicago and was featured in episode 10. Portland Gia had only been dancing for two months at that point, as she mentioned in the last clip. I moved here because my partner is doing a double doctorate program here in Portland. And I was a barista before, I was unable to find another job. And so I kind of fell into the industry in that sense. Um, but I am so glad that I did, um, financially and confidence-wise. And I did ballet professionally for 10 years before this, and I was unable to kind of let out that art artistic side of myself for a while. So it's nice to be able to tap into that and kind of get that performance fix, plus the financial side of it. She knows that people go to strip clubs for different reasons than they go to the ballet, but she nonetheless feels, at least at Casa Diablo, that her artistry is respected. And even though it's been such a short period of time, Gia is completely comfortable with her new job. It comes like any other job when, like, you know, naturally in any customer service job, a nervous or shy person is gonna get really comfortable really fast talking to people. Same thing with being naked in front of people. It's it, it's so repetitive that you just get used to it. Once like this many people have seen you naked, it's like what's a dozen more. Right, exactly. Part of why Gia is comfortable with the work is because she doesn't feel judged doing it in Portland. And she wouldn't want to strip in a less open-minded place. I mean, I feel really proud about what I do, and I wouldn't want to be in a situation where I feel, what's the word, like oppressed in a sense, socially. Or judged. Or judged, yeah. She's from San Diego, and the huge impact the vibe and culture of Portland has had on her in a pretty short period of time really came into focus the last time she was back home. 
Well, I think the one thing is, is that it's so relaxed here, and I recently visited my hometown um, a week ago, and I was actually overwhelmed for two days with the energy of how fast it was down there. And I think, so what surprised me here is I didn't realize how slow and relaxed it is um, until I actually, like, went out of Portland. (laughs) After being here for six months, I was like... Whoa, like this is so crazy. So, everyone was just like rushing, and yeah, and here they're just laid back. Yeah, I mean, I I tried to go to like one of my favorite bars in San Diego when I went home, and I had to leave. I was literally overwhelmed with the intensity. And it's so funny because my job is very intense and it's like party girl, but it was still more than so just just being a pedestrian in San Diego is more intense than being a stripper stripper in Portland. Yeah. (laughs) It was so weird because you'd think like, oh, a stripper in, you know, anywhere can handle anything, but it's not the case. (laughs) Another difference Gia has noticed in Portland is a mainstreaming of polyamory, and she considers this a good thing. Personally, I can't imagine, like, fucking the same person for my whole life, even if I love them. I think... Like, for us, it was definitely a threatening concept for um, a lot of our relationship. Now we've been together for so long that we have a really nice established trust and respect and love for each other that it's not threatening, and it actually creates more love to be able to talk about um, wanting to experience other sexual experiences with another person, and that's not a threat. Um, And I think it's a healthy place to be. And I think she's picked the right city to make that transition. A number of people told me that they think Portland is the most poly city in the U.S., if not the world. Sex Positive World's Gabriela Cordova shares that point of view. She mentioned earlier that her parents were poly. When she entered into her first relationship at the age of 16, she followed in her parents' footsteps and has been poly ever since. Here's her working definition for polyamory. There's a spectrum of closed and monogamous to completely open without any agreements. And somewhere and polyamory falls on a part of that continuum. So it's everything from a closed triad to, you know, a, a polyfidelitous group marriage to a primary couple that has secondary lovers. So there's a lot of different uh, stops along the polyamory part of the continuum. But it is, and it includes open open relationship. But usually there is a emotional or relational component to it. So So swinging would actually fall more on the monogamy part of the spectrum. If you're in relationship, you might be considered, you might consider yourself completely monogamous, but you swing. Because you're more polysexual than polyamorous. Yes. Because amorous means passionate. Polyamorous people are generally passionate about their partners. It's not about one-night stands or meaningless hookups. But poly relationships also don't necessarily include lifelong or long-term commitments. Though they can. I think a major component of polyamory's popularity is the flexibility of it. A person or group can structure their relationship in basically an endless number of ways. Another reason Anna Marie believes Portland is extraordinarily poly, as she put it, 
is the level of poly visibility in that city. There's no it, like secret handshake or you have to be invited to just the right party in order to meet the people who will even talk about poly. Here you can say, oh, I'm polyamorous. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, so is that one. And yeah, so I've is got my three mom. Coworkers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but we also have a lot of um, support for polyamorous people here. We have a handful of um, groups that meet. There's some dating events that happen. Poly for people who are over 40. Poly for people who are under 30. I saw one of the events at Catalyst was Pollyween. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dark Lady's been involved in like the just general sex positive community, the poly community, the kink community for a very long time. So a lot of her events are kind of open to all of those things. I unfortunately didn't get to speak to Dark Lady, but I did speak to Larry, her partner in running the Catalyst art and cultural space. Larry is poly as well. And he sees both an upside and a downside to the level of poly visibility present in Portland. What you find in Portland is a whole lot of people, and this happens to me a lot, who say, I'm trying poly, or I'm learning poly, or I'm expanding into poly, or, you know, I've been in a relationship, but we're now opening it up to poly. I've been poly as long as I can remember. I was poly as soon as I was sexual. The whole exercise that I went through back in the South, in, in you know, where I grew up, of attempting to conform to mainstream expectations of monogamy, completely inappropriate for me. You know, it totally didn't work. Um, and I knew it at the time. I could feel it at the time. So my perspective on what it is like here is perhaps very useful because I see the people who are really honest to God, Polly, and the people who are just kind of doing it because everyone else is doing it and it looks cool. And maybe that's something they should try. But it's actually really hard work. Um, And if you don't know that already, you better figure it out. And a lot of that hard work revolves around communication. Especially communicating about your own faults and your own failings. Being able to say, wow, I really fucked that up, you know? I was just god-awful in that circumstance. Or I had this terrible thought. And often those terrible thoughts relate to possessiveness or jealousy. If you've read Sex at Dawn, you know there's a debate about whether possessiveness around sexual partners is inherently human or if it's a social construct. But regardless of where it comes from, it's real and can destroy relationships, both monogamous and polyamorous. I got so jealous one time with one particular partner that... I literally went into anxiety attacks and had compulsive fantasies about how to kill her other partner. How were you going to do it in your fantasy? (laughs) It involved uh, setting a fire as a trap um, and dying in the process, you know? And the entire... It was a kamikaze mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The entire time I was having these 
anxiety attacks. And that's what they were. They were anxiety attacks. They were my brain spinning out of control. The entire time I was having these attacks, I was there was a part of me that was looking on them and going, that is so fucked up. <laughs> you should really stop doing that. And I couldn't stop. How were you able to fix the problem? Um, Xanax <laughs> is what stopped the hamster wheel. Um, and after that, it was just doing the mental work that was necessary in digging down, figuring out where that was all coming from, and, 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 and positioning myself so that I wasn't being exposed to the stimuli that were setting me off. Now I'm much better equipped to engage because I've been through this experience and it has sharpened all the tools in that part of my brain. It was super brave of Larry to share that experience with me. And I have a feeling those types of experiences are surprisingly common. And having gone through it once, Larry is in a much better position psychologically to handle any issues of jealousy that might arise in his current relationship. I just remember what it was like before and, and go back to that and think, you know, how bad would it have been if I'd have let that make my decisions? How bad would it have been if I'd have actually set fire to that house <laughs> and waited for that other guy <laughs> to show up? <laughs> I think it would have been pretty bad. And of course, polyamory has enriched Larry's life in many ways as well, but that doesn't make it any less of a struggle. Anna Marie is also happily poly and agrees that it's hard work. I feel like poly helps me continue to grow in ways that monogamy didn't. And I have in, I in no way feel that polyamory is any way superior to monogamy. It's just another way of having a relationship and it's a way that works for me and my primary partner. And are there downsides that you've experienced or, or Scheduling's no? Scheduling's a bitch. <laughs> I, there's actually an article I need to read on the computer about some new app that was designed to help manage your poly relationships. And I know that there's the, the podcast um, Polyamory Weekly with okay. Cunning Minx. Every once in a while, she has an episode that's specifically dedicated to the technology that we use to maintain our different relationships and schedule and all that. Uh, so that's kind of like the funny ha 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 joke answer. Cause it actually is kind of a pain in the ass sometimes. Um, otherwise it's for it to be really successful. You have to be willing to fumble through communication to a different degree than I think a lot of people do in monogamous relationships. Some monogamous relationships are packed full of amazing communication. Absolutely. Um, but you don't, you, you can't really opt out of, working on that when you're polyamorous because you have just a variety of different relationships and everybody communicates differently. So yeah, being okay with the learning curve around communication is, it can be rough. Another podcast that has some interesting episodes about polyamory is Sex Nerd Sandra. Her October 24th episode features the authors of More Than Two, a book about communication and problem-solving in poly relationships. It's worth a listen. I met Larry at an event I first saw on Anna Marie's kinky calendar called Rope and Skin, an art event. And he wore several hats at that event. He was a featured artist displaying rope bondage photography. And he also was a host of the event because 
It took place at his Catalyst Art and Cultural Space. Larry first entered Portland's sex-positive scene through the art world. He curated mainstream art for a number of businesses before transitioning into erotic art. Dark Lady, who was mentioned earlier, was looking for a space to host sexy events like Polyween, and Larry was looking for a space to display erotic art where it would actually be seen. So they teamed up and gave birth to the Catalyst Art and Cultural Space. During the exhibit, I stumbled across the Catalyst event calendar, and it was pretty amazing. One item that really jumped out at me was a meeting of the kinky introverts. Have you witnessed the kinky introverts? And do they talk to each other? I was at the meeting yesterday. Um, and yes, we did. We talked a lot, actually. So you consider yourself a kinky introvert? Yes, absolutely. Um, I am totally in that crowd. That's why it makes me not an event planner. I'm way too introverted to be an event planner. So one of the things that, I mean, and this is actually true of all the groups, um, you know, you get together with people who have the same expectations as you. And so then you don't feel threatened by other people's expectations. So somebody, you, you know when you're going to a kinky introvert's event that if you sit in the corner and play with your phone or read a book or knit or whatever, no one's going to be offended and no one's going to come impose themselves on your space. And that happens. That totally happens. In fact, for a couple of the kinky introverts meetups that we've had that have been great, uh, we have set up a, um, a blanket fort in the middle of the room where people can actually go in and be all by themselves in the middle of an event that was organized for their benefit. <laughs> that is definitely the kind of thing I would expect at a kinky introvert meeting, and I'm glad that you guys are being true to yourselves. Catalyst has been going strong for a little over two years at this point. But early on, Larry was skeptical that the space would work well for his partner Dark Lady, a.k.a. Teresa, and her events. So when we first moved into the Catalyst, uh, Teresa's events, Polyween, or even just her naughty karaoke, which happens twice a month. Um, How naughty does naughty karaoke get? It gets naughty. It, people, <laughs> people have sex. And this is my point. This is actually the point of the story. So we moved into the Catalyst, and I looked around, and as we're cleaning it up, I kind of said to her, I'm sorry that... I don't think this space is going to be suitable for the kind of events you really want to have. You really want to have play parties. You really want to have parties where people get busy, get down to it. And I'm looking around, and I'm looking at brick walls, and concrete floor, and low, low dark ceiling, and no shower. And I'm thinking, I would never get down to business in this place. And so I, I apologize to you, Teresa, that we're in a space that really isn't going to live up to your needs and hopes and expectations for a space at, at, the, at the greatest ideal for you. And, uh, well, it just turns out I was completely wrong <laughs> because other people are not... <laughs> people will fucking a cardboard check. And that's and that was that was news to me. That that was such a shock to me. And I when I discovered that, uh, you know, just drop of a hat, 
they just get busy and they do it all the time and especially Teresa's events you know more than anybody's but every now and then, we've had a couple Tantra events that have turned into you know outright sex parties um, and we've had uh, you know in Teresa's stuff that that's ends up being what happens half the time at least um, and so these other groups that come in the you know circle jerk guys and whatever uh, it works for them. My favorite thing about The Catalyst is how it interacts with the broader sex-positive community in Portland. We don't just run our own events, but even more importantly, we bring in key people from the community, and uh, once we vet them, we uh, make them key holders. And to be a key holder means you get 24-7 access to the space, and you are allowed to come in and host your own events. Uh, so Teresa and I don't have to be hands-on for everything. So that's that's what we're trying to do is diversify um, and uh, provide as much opportunity for the people in the community. Because they don't want to have to deal with us every single time they want to come in and do something. And so it's kind of like a membership club where you can kind of come in and have your own little social or soiree or whatever. Um, and that works great for everyone. And so they pay us like um, a, a certain amount to, to have this membership status. That's how we make money. And then they're allowed to keep most, you know, the, the vast majority of what they make on their events. They, they pay us a small, what I call tithe. <laughs> <laughs> to the Church of Catalyst. Exactly. <laughs> but of course the Catalyst is about much more than making money. I very strongly believe in supporting other people's thing, whether it's my thing or not, and giving them a place to be that. And so one of the very, one of the most important philosophies that I think the Catalyst embodies is something I call um, freedom of sexual self-expression. So it's like the freedom of expression that comes from the art side of things and the how you present yourself to the world as a sexual being. Um, and I still got a lot of work to do on that vector myself. But meanwhile, there's no better way to do work on yourself than to provide for the community, than to, to, to give, you know, what you have to offer. And so that's what I'm, that's, that's what the Catalyst is about to me. It's also about displaying amazing art. When I was there, one wall was dedicated to the rope bondage art from the exhibit, but the rest of the space featured a diverse array of other erotic art, and it was all really cool. Catalyst, much like the kink calendar, serves as a bridge for various sexual subcultures in Portland to come together, which is fantastic. In addition to the calendar, Anna Marie is also involved with her primary partner Kat's sex toy company, In Her Tube. And the toys they make fit in well with the city's general vibe. Um, they actually work well with Portland's focus in that they are recycled. They're vegan. We are not vegan, but the toys are vegan. They just happen to work well for that. The impact toys are extra mean because it's heavy-duty rubber, and rubber is nasty. Um, the... The main thing that sets us apart is Kat designed, designed a 
standard harness. So like a standard dildo harness, like you'd see anywhere else, but they're all custom fit. So she can fit anybody's body. And that's where we get most of our repeat business and that we can fit people who are teeny tiny, have no hips and have troubles with the harnesses that just kind of slip off them um, all the way up to people who are very, very large or have like very large with no ass or any of these, these bodies that are traditionally really hard to fit for a sex harness. Like you buy one of the one size fits all and it's, it's a nightmare to try to use or even feel comfortable in. A lot of companies don't carry larger sizes. And that was a big, big deal for Kat. She wanted to make harnesses that worked really, really well for big women. To find these vegan recycled plus-sized harnesses, go to InHerTube.com. In episode four, we talked a bit about the problem of toxic sex toys. So I was glad to hear that with only one possible exception, all of InHerTube's insertables are non-toxic. So the dildos that we carry are made by Vixen, and they're all silicone, so they're non-reactive. They're very, very safe. Cat does make a toy called the Treat out of um, a rubber dog toy that because of the material it's made with, we always tell people to put a condom over it for that reason, because we can't guarantee because it's a it's a dog toy. Dog toys don't really have all that much regulation around what's in them, it, but it's fun. So put a condom over it and it's going to be much, much safer. And then the other insertable that she makes is called the chain cock, and that's just welded steel, so there isn't any any issue with toxicity around that. And who doesn't want to get fucked by a dog toy? One part of living in a house that doubles as a sex toy company is the joy of testing potential products. Every once in a while, Kat will try something out, and we'll test it, and it's like, yeah, it doesn't actually work the way we thought it would work. And so then it goes and gets either scrapped or it gets redesigned. Usually, I think that's happened more with some of the restraints that she has made. Um, and it's just, it's troubleshooting. Um, my favorite part is when she designs a toy that actually works really, really well. And so she'll start to make it. And then she's pissed off when I use it on her. Because it <laughs> hurts. <laughs> like, you made it. What do you expect? <laughs> But yeah, the testing process is a lot of fun. And we have a remarkable number of friends who are more than willing to help us test out products. How, how big is that <laughs> list of friends? <laughs> we have a lot of friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Like, do you do it all at once, like as a party or it's like something they take home? And <laughs> um, Usually it's like we, we play with our friends, like do BDSM play with them. So sometimes we'll test stuff out that way. Occasionally Kat will... Um, give a toy to somebody to test out, especially if it was partly their idea. Like they wanted a toy to do this certain thing and Kat's been working on a toy to do that certain thing. So they'll get to take what, it What sort of ideas have people brought to you guys? Um, we have a lot of requests for harnesses that can hold butt plugs in, um, various impact toys. So we have like standard floggers. We have some other slappers and other sorts of impact toys. But every once in a while, somebody will come to us and say, I want a toy that looks like this. Is this a toy that you can make? And so Kat will start to develop that. One of the more recent ones, uh, the idea came at Kinkfest where a friend came up and said, I love the puppy community locally. Do you guys, can you make a, like a puppy bone gag? And so we have some of the dog toy rubber chew bones that Kat has put on 
a, a strap that goes behind your neck that's adjustable to use as a gag instead of like a ball gag or a bit gag. So you can sit there with this lovely little dog bone in your mouth and just <laughs> chew and not talk and drool. They cause a lot of drooling. So that well, was a, one of the most recent ones. I think that makes for a more realistic puppy. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, you get one of the really realistic wagging dog tail butt plugs and then a, a dog bone up front with the drool. And you're ready for the pound. Mm -hmm. Again, that is I-N-H-E-R-T-U-B-E dot com. Before I leave you guys, I need to make a quick correction from last episode. I made the mistake of making an assumption about Kelly Byers, who you may recall was the subject of the Cosmo piece we talked about. I assumed she was straight when she is actually bisexual. I apologize for the error. I want to thank everyone who spoke with me. A special thanks also goes out to Ramona once again for introducing me to Misha and to Misha for her patience with the fact that the cab that was supposed to pick me up from her house took more than an hour to arrive and she was super polite during an hour of small talk about her delightful dog named Monster who's missing his lower jaw and has a crooked face. It was a good time. I also need to thank Mary for really introducing me to the rest of her sex-positive world, Portland posse, and of course that whole crew for welcoming me in and letting me in on one of their events. To Larry for being so open and honest and hanging out. To the folks at Casa Diablo, and of course, the lovely Anna Marie. And I'm sorry if I'm forgetting anyone. You all were great. I hope everyone enjoyed this show. I, of course, need to also thank Sean Payne and Louis DeMeo for all of the work they've done to make this possible. And finally, I have kind of a major announcement that I know <laughs> not everyone's going to love. In fact, I don't necessarily love it myself but this show is going to go monthly moving forward i tried to make the twice monthly release schedule work but it turns out that in order to make the kinds of episodes i'd like to make i need more than two weeks so now we're going to release the show on the first of every month i know that's annoying but we're going with quality over quantity and we have some really ambitious things planned. I guarantee the episodes will be better in the monthly format. And I will see you again January 1st with an episode about age play. Enjoy the rest of 2014. See you soon.